Right, we're into session two of Clive's take on the holidays or festivals or whatever you want to call them. Uh, and you'll recall that last week we attempted, or I attempted, the impossible task of comprehending all that goes on in Tishri in one session. But luckily, I'd given myself hardly anything to do in the last two sessions, just Hanukkah and Burim. Uh, so I'm going to carry on with Tishri for a while. Ah, we've got more folk. Good. Um, you may need to get some extra chairs. I don't know. Are there spare chairs? Sufficient chairs? Oh, we still have. Oh, there's a couple here. Good. Okay. Um, so, uh, last, uh, do we have enough chairs? There's, uh, there's a couple over here, and there's one over here, and one over there, too. Uh, if you sit near the front, I won't ask you to read anything, don't worry. Yes, that's also a possibility. But it's so nice to feel crowded, isn't it? Um, there's a synagogue in Edinburgh, in Scotland, uh, which, uh, whose community was diminishing and diminishing. And they were getting more and more depressed about the fact that every time they turned up to shul, there was just kind of a scattering of people around, and it was starting to feel like the community was dying. So they solved the problem. It was an Orthodox synagogue with a gallery and um, downstairs. They solved the problem by selling off the community hall, and they lifted the floor of the synagogue up into the gallery to make a one-floor synagogue with the outer edges for women and the middle bit for men, um, and the hall underneath. And suddenly they all felt crowded again, and they, and they felt so much better about it. It's exactly the same number of people, just crammed in a bit more, you know. So, nice idea. And uh, lower heating bills, which is an important thing in Scotland. Um, okay. So, last, uh, last week we looked at the beginning of Tishri, the, these uh, first uh, major two events, the Yamin Norayim, the days of awe, awesomeness, um, uh, uh, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur and we noted that first of all the Torah itself doesn't call Rosh Hashanah Rosh Hashanah it doesn't call it the new year it says it's a day of blowing but it doesn't say why you should blow it's called a day of remembrance but it doesn't tell you what to remember and it doesn't connect Rosh Hashanah with Yom Kippur this we've done um, and then in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur I briefly mentioned uh, this minor fast Tzom Gedalia, the fast of Gedalia. Um, so we were turning our attention to what happens in the second half of Tishri, which the rabbis do not much connect to what happens in the first half. What happens in the second half, of course, is the festival of Sukkot. Or to be more precise, four different things happen in the second half of Sukkot. Um, in the second half of Tishri. And we're going to deal with those four things now. So you're familiar with the idea, the name of the festival of Sukkot. Uh, it is in the Bible, a seven-day festival. Uh, in the diaspora, Orthodox Jews certainly, and some others, keep eight days of it. Um, uh, and that's for various historical reasons, which we may discuss if we have time, but it's up to you. Um, and uh, so we have this festival of Sukkot, which means uh, booths or huts or tabernacles. Um, uh, and uh, it commemorates two things. Like the, all of the three pilgrim festivals, the three pilgrim festivals are all harvest festivals, they're agricultural festivals. So Pesach is the barley harvest, Shavuot is the wheat harvest, 
and Sukkot is the conclusion of the harvest, the, the total harvest festival. Um, by the way, if you have difficulty, I mean, you're probably so in touch with agriculture out here in the countryside that it's not difficult for you. But if you have difficulty remember which is barley and which is wheat, you should remember that barley is the lesser grain, the less good quality grain. And barley is therefore the grain that was used to feed animals. They wouldn't use wheat to feed animals. That was good quality stuff. And according to the Torah, and therefore according to the rabbis, God always feeds the animals first. So Pesach, the barley harvest, Shavuot, the wheat harvest. Um, anyway, so we have uh, Sukkot, which is the culmination of the agricultural year. And in the, um, the Jewish calendar mind, uh, the year is basically bookended by Pesach at the beginning, the beginning of the whole kind of agricultural harvesting process, and the end, Sukkot. There's six months between the two. And these are the active six months of the, of the agricultural year, the really busy times, the summertime. After Sukkot, everything kind of goes into abeyance uh, through the wintertime and then picks up again in the preliminaries towards spring. Um, there's a chair here if you want. Susan, you're okay? We saved it in order to embarrass you. No, no, no. That's why we put it there in the middle to embarrass latecomers. <laughs> Come and accept your role. No, okay. All right, fair enough. Right, you'll be uncomfortable, I was sitting there. I'm, I'm going on for the next two hours. Okay. Um, okay. Um, so, uh, uh, Sukkot, then, is the agricultural festival that concludes this cycle of agriculture. But like the other two pilgrim festivals, which are also agricultural events, it also um, commemorates an event, or not really a single event, but a, an aspect of the central myth of the Jewish people. Uh, I've said before, I think, that I'm using the word myth here not to imply lack of belief. You know, in the modern way in which we use the word myth, that's just a myth, meaning it's just rubbish, I don't believe it, it's nonsense, it's a fairy tale. I'm not using the word that way. I'm using it in its proper sense of a, of a, a, a story that is more truth, more true than mere fact. May be factual, may not be factual, that's not the important thing. What's important in a myth is that it reverberates with truth. And the truth, the central myth for the Jewish people is the exodus from Egypt. Right? The central truth for the Jewish people is that God took the people of the Israelites out of Egypt, gave them his Torah, and looked after them in a circumstance that they couldn't possibly have managed on their own. That's the central story of the Jewish people, and it reverberates and reverberates through all kinds of things that the Jews do, so much so, in fact, that we have this uh, central uh, requirement to never forget the exodus from Egypt. Right? So that uh, you may know that in the, in the Kiddush prayer that we say on Friday night, Friday night is obviously a time to remember the, the creation and God rests on the seventh day. But we also say, mitzrayim, in, uh, to remember the exodus from Egypt. Right? Everything that Jews do comes back and reminds us and recalls to remember the exodus from Egypt. So much so, some of you may not uh, notice this, and it's not usually referred to, uh, a common sign of a Jewish household is a mezuzah. there on the doorposts. Doorposts, folks, immediately reverberate for Jews. Doorposts is where you put the blood 
in order to get the angel of death to pass over in the Passover story. So Muzuzah immediately takes you to the story of the Exodus. There's so many things that we do that take us back to that Exodus story. And so, of course, the three pilgrim festivals, these, these festivals of the Jewish people, Pesach, Shavuot, and Sukkot, describe the sequence of this central myth. Pesach, the Exodus from Egypt, Shavuot, the giving of the Torah, and Sukkot, the wandering in the wilderness. You may know, uh, and you may have noticed, that if you read the Torah top to bottom and back to front, well, if back to front doesn't always help, of course, but if you read it whichever way you want to read it, you will not see any reference to the Jews living in tabernacles. There's no reference. They're not in, in open uh, roof huts. They're in tents. They're always in tents. That's obvious, isn't it? I mean, where would they find the branches and the, and the tree and the, all that stuff? They're in the wilderness, for goodness sake, right? So it doesn't make any reference to that. And there's much rabbinic discussion about what is the nature of the Sukkot in which the, the Israelites lived. And we won't spend a lot of time on it, but uh, they, they make reference to the idea that they were under the, the canopy of God's cloud or God's protection, so that the Sukkot in the rabbis' minds was frequently um, a quite uh, symbolic idea rather than an actual physical reality. But it doesn't matter. Right? The fact still remains that Sukkot uh, tracks us back into that story of the wandering of the Jews in the wilderness. Now, as, you, uh, as we mentioned last week, and as you may know, uh, according to the halakha, for those of you who are halakhically inclined, um, according to the halakha, the first thing you should do at the end of Yom Kippur, before going home and having your piece of challah or whatever the local thing is to do to break your fast, um, before doing that, you hammer in the first nail of your sukkah. Now, this is part of the um, rabbi's Tarzan swing through the Jewish calendar. Right? The rabbis didn't ever like to leave you hanging on your own. You had to swing from one creeper to the next. So as soon as Yom Kippur is finished, grab the Sukkot creeper and swing forward. And, and so they said, hammer in the nail. But actually, that's the only connection that seems to be made. Except, of course, that Sukkot happens five days later. So you don't have a lot of time to get things organized. You put up your Sukkah. The Sukkah, as you probably know, um, uh, has a, a lot of halachic uh, stuff around it. Uh, the critical feature of a sukkah being this open, uh, open to the sky roof, which is not so thin that it doesn't provide some uh, level of, of protection, but not so thick that you can't see the sky or some part of the sky through it, so you see some stars. It must be made of living uh, of material that has been alive, but is no longer alive. So you can't make your sukkah using the overhanging branches of a tree, right? Because those branches are still alive. Nor can you make your sukkah using, I don't know, uh, plastic sheeting or, or concrete strips or something, because these things were never alive. It must be organic material, but not organic material that is still living. Right? And these things are laid on the, on the roof. It doesn't have to be fancy, and it doesn't have to be green. That's our... Um, uh, pleasant uh, um, aesthetic response, uh, but it can just be, uh, for example, some people use a rush mat, 
right? Just a piece of rush matting. That's uh, rushes are, were alive. They're dead now. It's you can see through the uh, through the slats of the map, so it serves the purpose. That's good enough. You don't have to hang fruit from it, though people do. Uh, or vegetables. We have potatoes and stuff hanging in our Sukkot uh, in England, um, and uh, and people decorate them with uh, paper chains and tinsel and whatever else because we don't get that chance at Christmas time. Um, <laughs> Uh, but the critical thing about Sukkot, of course, is that you're supposed to leave your home and live in the Sukkah, right? Now, in different climates, uh, this is more or less easy. Uh, what does live in the Sukkah mean? The minimum is that you should consume, consume some food in it. You may or may not be surprised to know that in the Jewish mind, living constitutes consuming food, right? Um, and, and therefore, uh, you have to consume some food in the sukkah on every day of Sukkot, right? Um, how much food? Enough to make a blessing on, which is uh, the size of an olive, right? Enough to make a blessing on. Um, and the ideal of Sukkot... Uh, has become the ideal of hospitality. Now, as you know, it's not uncommon for Jews to uh, demonstrate hospitality to people on all kinds of festivals, to have family round for, for uh, Pesach Seder, to have people round on Friday night dinner, whatever it may be. But Sukkot is par excellence, the festival of hospitality. Um, There's a really important feature of it because, as we understand it, it's a time when, as it were, the world is open. We're open to the world. Uh, and therefore, we shouldn't be putting up boundaries and walls and limits. We should be including people rather than excluding people. So Sukkot in particular is a time of hospitality, uh, giving rise to a really nice little um, uh, Kabbalistic custom of welcoming in uh, certain ushpizin. Uh, it's an Aramaic word meaning uh, visitors or guests. Um, I don't know if you've seen the film, Ushpizin. It's a great, marvellous film. Uh, the Ushpizin in, uh, in the Kabbalistic idea are the great um, uh, ancestors, the patriarchs and others of, of the Jewish people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Aaron, and David, those, those seven. And each day uh, you welcome in uh, one of them. Uh, in my family, my daughters, this is an opportunity for my daughters to roll their eyes, even though they're still they're in their 20s now. But you can't take tradition away, can you? Um, so this is an opportunity for me to stand up and go, come in, Abraham, sit down. We meet the family, girls, say hello to Abraham. They go, hello. Right, and so on. Right, and we do that every night with the different ushpis according to whoever we happen to have that particular day. Um, my mum used to uh, set out a whole chair with a cushion and stuff, but I don't have enough room in my sukkah. Um, so uh, sukkah then, a time for hospitality, a time to commemorate this um, wandering in the wilderness, which of course therefore gives rise to a sense of um, extreme dependency. Right? We're out there. We're in the open air. So you would think, wouldn't you, that this is a time to feel vulnerability, isn't it? Right? Because we, we leave our, our brick-built homes to go into this vulnerable, flimsy uh, environment out there under the elements and so on. But it's none of that. Because actually, if the weather's not pleasant, if it's not going to be nice to be in the Sukkah, don't go into it. Why? Because... 
Sukkot is called the festival of our rejoicing. Right? It is the festival of happiness. If Sukkot is not pleasant, then you're not doing it right. Right? In fact, in the Talmud, Sukkot is simply called Hechag, the festival. Right? The other festivals are given names, but Sukkot, just the festival. This is unalloyed pleasure and joy. And you've just got to stop and think, of course, and, and of course here in California, I guess it's not going to be very difficult to imagine either, that Sukkot in Israel, the original Sukkot, it's a lovely, balmy period of time, sitting under the sun in your nicely sheltered, uh, shaded uh, sukkah. Of course, our uh, ancestors in Poland, or indeed even my uh, co-religionists in Britain, don't always find Sukkot such a pleasant experience. But if it starts to rain or whatever it is, come inside. Don't spoil it for yourself. Don't sit there miserably shivering. Right? Sukkot is a time of happiness. That's a very, very clear. And, and Zman Simchatenu, uh, the season of our rejoicing, uh, is what Sukkot is called. Every, every festival has a strap line, all right? Um, so so uh, Pesach is Zman Cherutenu, the season of our freedom, right? Um, uh, Shavuot is Zman Matan Toratenu, the season of the giving of our Torah. Sukkot is Zman Simchatenu, the season of our rejoicing. This is a happy time. And it's a time, therefore, when, in fact, although we're supposed to have some sense of this dependency, we're also supposed to feel very carefree. The harvest is in. All is good. We, we can trust in God. It's not a feeling of vulnerability at all. It's a feeling of trust. Really difficult for us to muster when we are so accustomed to relying on the bricks and mortar that surround us. Right? And yet there we go into this place and we feel here we're really in a place we can trust. It's a very odd um, challenge, I think, to the modern Western affluent mind. So there we are uh, uh, for Sukkot, uh, um, a seven-day festival, or as I say, eight-day festival. But oddly enough, in the Torah, there is Shmini Atzeret. Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day of Atzeret. Well, is it the eighth day? Because if it is the eighth day, then Sukkot isn't seven days. It's eight days. And it finishes with Shemini Atzeret. Because if it's not the eighth day of Sukkot, then why is it called the eighth day? Why isn't it just called Atzeret? The day of Atzeret. Yom Atzeret. Shemini Atzeret. Is it part of Sukkot? Or is it not part of Sukkot? Now, before we even come to that... We've got the seventh day of Sukkot, which is Hoshana Rabbah. I don't know how many of you have ever paid attention to Hoshana Rabbah, uh, but the, its name should suggest some level of interest. Hoshana Rabbah, the great salvation. Hoshanot. Yeah, the great salvation, Hoshana Rabbah. This is an event which has fallen into almost total abeyance outside uh, fairly orthodox circles, Hoshana Rabbah. Uh, and yet, it was a highly significant, highly significant event in the Jewish calendar, certainly so long as the temple stood. So significant, in fact, uh, that, uh, as I pointed out to uh, other um, audiences during this um, lecture series, 
lecture tour, should I say, um, the rabbis would fiddle the calendar so that Hoshana Rabbah did not fall on Shabbat. Because if it did fall on Shabbat, you wouldn't be able to celebrate the requirements of Hoshana Rabbah. Right? And one of the things that Hoshana Rabbah involves, as we say, the, the festival of great salvation, of great um, saving, um, was a ceremony which involved marching round the synagogue, or indeed the temple originally, seven times with the lulav. Now, I, I haven't mentioned the lulav. You know about the lulav. This is the palm branch and the other three items, the myrtle and the willow and the uh, um, fancy, uh, fancy lemon with uh, fashion uh, promotion, um, and the etrog. And these things are waved in the six directions of the compass. Yes, uh, east, north, west, south, up and down, right? Six directions of the compass. And, um, and they are, that's an ancient, ancient custom. Now, you, uh, you may or may not know that the Torah, of course, doesn't define any of the other three items. It defines the palm branch, but the other three items are only vaguely described. The willow is probably pretty clear, but the myrtle and the etrog, the citron, are, are not clear at all. Uh, one is a dense-leafed um, uh, branch, could be lots of things, and the other is the, the fruit of a beautiful tree could be lots of things. But they've settled into these traditional items, and that's what we have. And uh, we wave them each day of, of Sukkot. Now, when the temple was standing, this was a practice which was done in the temple. Those who turned up to the temple would uh, wander around the temple with their lulavim, and they would go around the temple, uh, and they would perform a hoshana. Uh, a circuit round the temple courtyard, singing these songs of salvation, praying for salvation, or sana, right? Uh, and they would do it once. They'd go round once. When the temple was destroyed, and guys here, you either have to thank or regret the existence of a fellow called Yochanan ben Zakkai. If you have not got a note in your diaries to enthuse about Yochanan ben Zakkai at least once a year, then you have missed out on a man you should have noticed. Right? Yochanan ben Zakkai was a rabbi alive at the time of the destruction of the Second Temple. And he was, along with many others, trapped inside besieged Jerusalem. Um, and he didn't want to be inside besieged Jerusalem. In fact, he wanted to see if he could make some kind of peace with the besieging Romans. He, the zealots inside, the freedom fighters, the whatever you want to call them, uh, insurgents, the terrorists, it's up to you which side you're on. Um, the zealots inside Jerusalem didn't want anybody out uh, making, trying to make peace, and they tried to stop anybody getting out. Um, but uh, Yochanan ben Zakkai's uh, disciples um, uh, masqueraded a funeral for Yochanan ben Zakkai. They said he died. Uh, you couldn't bury the dead inside Jerusalem, you still can't. Um, so the body had to be taken out, and indeed the zealots wanted to uh, stick swords into the funeral uh, beer, um, and, and the, the disciples said, you can't possibly do this to a great man like Jochen and Ben Zakkai. So they desisted, luckily. Um, ben Zakkai got outside, jumped down off the beer, and went to meet the uh, besieging Roman general, Vespasian, and um, asked 
uh, and, and greeted Vespasian as emperor. Vespasian said, don't be such a fool, I'm not an emperor. We've got an emperor, he's Nero, he's in Rome and he's the emperor. Um, Jochenen ben Zakkai says, well, I'm telling you, you're going to be emperor. And Vespasian says, you're a fool, there's no reason why I should be emperor. But if you're right, I will give you whatever you ask for. He's just sitting outside the besieged walls of Jerusalem. I will give you whatever you ask for. And Yochanan ben Zakkai said, okay, I'll have Yavne. This is like if you were sitting outside the besieged walls of, of Washington and somebody says, you know, and, they, and they're about to bombard the White House and Congress and so on. Say, I'll give you whatever you like. And you say, okay, I'll have Harvard. Right? He chose uh, what, well, perhaps more obscure than that, I'll have Ann Arbor. Right? He chose a, a place which was not obvious at all, but did have a center of scholarship. And within minutes or days, in comes a, a messenger saying, Hail to thee, Vespasian. Uh, Nero has died and you are recalled as emperor. So Vespasian said, okay, you've got Yavne. And his son, Titus, then knocked down Jerusalem. Um, so Yochanan ben Zakkai found himself in Yavne with a bunch of rabbis. The Sanhedrin was transferred there and faced with huge halachic challenges. What to do without a temple? This is the first time there had not been a temple uh, with the Jewish people for 600 years. There's nothing in the United States that's been around for 600 years, as far as I know. No building. Right? Is there? Saint in, in the United States? There's, there's, yes, six, St. Peter's? Oh, yeah? Okay. Good. All right, fine. So there is something. Excellent. Right. So that's been around for 600 years. So um, it, it, not many things in the United States have been around for 600 years. Anyway, the temple certainly... Uh, I need to find out more about that afterwards. Um, the temple certainly been around for 600 years. Absolute centre of the way the Jews worked, and now it's destroyed what to do. The temple, remember, destroyed on Tisha B'Av. Not exactly, actually, but let's not worry about that. Um, on the 9th of Av, which is in the middle of the summer. How much time is there between the 9th of Av and Tishri? Less than two months. And all the rabbis are sitting there in Yavna, upset enough about the destruction of the temple, and they're all saying to each other, guys, we've got to decide what to do. We haven't got a temple, and Rosh Hashanah's just around the corner, and then Yom Kippur, and then Sukkot. What do we do? Right? Because they haven't got any map anymore. Because everything that they were doing round the land of Israel in the synagogues, and they were indeed blowing the shofar and they were waving the lulav, but they were doing these things in echo of, in remembrance of what was being done in the temple. If there's no temple and nobody's blowing the shofar in the temple, do you blow the shofar? What are you echoing? There isn't anything. Right? If there's nobody waving the lulav in the temple, why would you wave the lulav at all? That's where you're supposed to be doing it. So this argument immediately sprung up. And Yochanan ben Zakkai said to his colleague rabbis, guys, we haven't got time to discuss this now. There's only a few weeks. We've got to put the word out to the Jews what to do. Let's just do it now and then we have time to discuss it. 
So they put the word out. It's not surprising because that's what people were doing anyway. They put the word out and said, for this year, guys, blow the shofar, wave the lulav, we'll have time to think about it. Right? So that's what they did. That first year, they blew the shofar, they waved the lulav. After Tishri, the rabbis all settled down and go, okay, now, guys, we've got a bit more time to think this one through. What shall we do? Yochan and Banzakai said, well, we did it, didn't we? So that's obviously the tradition. And that is why we blow the shofar and we wave the lunav. If Yochanan ben Zakkai had taken a different halachic position, we probably would have lost those practices completely and would only be talking about them in much the same way as we talk about the sacrifices that one day used to exist or might exist again if there were a temple, whatever. Right? But there they are, Yochanan ben Zakkai. You have him, him to thank. Um, so we wave the lunav. Um, but it's not really very clear what's going on here, unless, of course, you enlist the skills of anthropology. Enlist the skills of anthropology, and it's absolutely clear that what you have here is a fertility ritual. Right? The lulav is clearly a phallic symbol, clearly waving it around in order to induce power, sap, whatever. But how strange to do this in the autumn. How how contrary of the Jewish people to do it in the autumn, right? This is a time normally phallic uh, ceremonies in the ancient world would happen in springtime. So all the great phallic ceremonies were spring events. To put it in the autumn is to re-accentuate this remarkable Jewish tendency of starting time on the downbeat. I think we mentioned this last time about starting the year in autumn rather than in spring. Starting the day in the evening rather than in the morning. Starting time in the downbeat. As if to say, we know that the emergence of things doesn't happen when you first see them. It happens before you first see them. The birth of a child is not the beginning of a child. You know, those kinds of things. And, and so we have this remarkable phallic fertility um, ceremony happening at precisely the time that one might think that fertility is going to sleep. It's a remarkable statement of, of faith and confidence into the future that this is going to last, this is going to run. Right? And, and sure enough, it does. So that's Sukkot. And then on the seventh day of Sukkot, on the last day of the seven days, it's a cholamoed, it's a, not a, festive, a festival day, a full festival day, but on that seventh day, we have seven circuits with the lulav, right? And still that happens in Orthodox synagogues and maybe others, uh, every Sukkot, seven circuits of the synagogue with the lulav. Now, you probably recognize immediately something about seven circuits. First of all, of course, you know it's the potent way of bringing down the walls of Jericho, right? Circuiting the uh, city seven times while blowing on trumpets. That brought down the walls. This time, we're circuiting seven times with the lulav. And each time we go round, we sing songs of Hoshanot, of salvation. Um, Again, I think I mentioned this before, a rather strange uh, little fact in the New Testament. We're told that um, Jesus enters Jerusalem on a, on a donkey, and the people who have gathered there for the festival, the festival, remember what the rabbis called Sukkot? 
Hechag, the festival, the people there had gathered there for the festival, threw down palm branches and sang Hosanna. Hosanna. And a week later, it was Pesach. Sorry, guys, no. Wrong. Okay? What we have here is a conflated timetable. Right? It may as well have been a week later. Remember what I said about the kind of timetable of life. Right? Sukkot, at the end of Sukkot, everything kind of goes to sleep a bit through the winter and then picks up again in Pesach. So whether or not this is a conflated timetable because it was forgotten or because it was considered, in a sense, dramatically irrelevant that it was a six-month gap doesn't really matter. And I'm certainly not trying to knock the New Testament and it shouldn't shake any Christian's faith. Uh, but the fact still remains that these two festivals are clearly not one following one week after the other. Jews did not wave palm branches a week before Pesach. Right? And they certainly didn't sing Hosanna. That's Sukkot. Right? And so we have this great um, salvation festival of Hosanna Rabbah, the great salvation festival. Just about two weeks previously, we'd celebrated Yom Kippur. We'd watched the gates of mercy close at Neila. We were saved, weren't we? Wasn't, that, wasn't the book sealed and all written and life done? And five days later, we're traipsing around the shul, waving the lulav in every direction, going, save us, save us. And on the seventh day of Sukkot, we go, please, please save us. What's going on? How strange is that? Right? It completely contradicts the suggestion that Yom Kippur is somehow the closing of the cycle of salvation. Because on Sukkot, it all starts up again. Well, of course, the rabbis try and square this particular circle in all sorts of ways. My feeling is you don't have to try too hard. Uh, we've all, those of us who are parents will know this. That's the last time I'm telling you. No. Okay, all right, one more time. But after that, you go to bed. Well, all right, you can stay up for half an hour and then you go to bed. No, I, that's the last, well, all right, one more chance. And then, right, I think that's what God does with the Jewish people all the time. Right? The gates have closed, I'm sorry, that's it. Okay, all right, well, fair enough, I'll give you, no, that's the, no, all right, well, the, you know what the rabbis say, that we should repent the day before we die. And when asked, how do we know when we're going to die, the rabbis say, exactly. Right? You're supposed to repent every day. The idea, the stupid, one might even say primitive idea, that all repentance is somehow focused into these ten days and that's it. You know, Yom Kippur shuts and you go, well, nothing more to do for another year, is just simply stupid. Right? So we can recognize that the days of awe, this period of repentance, is a special focus, is a heightening period. But it's not an exclusive period. It's not the end of everything. You stop talking about it again until you get around to El the following year. And clearly we have this with the Hoshanot of Sukkot. But the other explanation given by the rabbis is that the salvation explored by Sukkot is not the salvation of the Jews, but the salvation of the land. We come back to the agricultural feature of Israel. Now, 
Again, I, I don't know how it works in the different liturgies in your different synagogues, and I'm only really familiar with my own. Um, but the uh, liturgy of the Orthodox service changes ever so slightly um, at two points in the year. Uh, that is, there's a summer liturgy and a winter liturgy. Uh, there's an extra line to be added in, um, in wintertime. Uh, he who causes the rain to fall and the wind, or the wind to blow and the rain to fall. Masiv haruach umorit hagasha. Right, those four words. Masiv haruach umorit hagasha. Slipped in to the Amida, just to keep you on your toes and make sure you're not uh, gabbling with too little interest. Right? Um, a, a famous story of a Yekish Jew, German Jew, very precise, right, who says to his wife, I'm going to be late from shul today. And she says, why? He says, we're saying masiv haruach umorit hagasha. Anyway, and these four extra words, okay? Um, and, uh, and this turn, this change from the, winter, the summer to the winter liturgy happens at Sukkot. Right? We change back from the winter to the summer liturgy at Pesach. Right? And there's a special <coughs> prayer to be said. Right? Tfilat Tal, the prayer for dew, is said at Pesach time. And Tfilat Goshen, the prayer for rain, is to be said at, um, at Sukkot time. When do we say Tfilat Goshen? We don't say it on the first day of Sukkot. We say it on Shemini Atzeret. Why? Because we're sitting in Sukkot for seven days. We don't want rain to fall while we're sitting in our Sukkot. So we leave it till the end of the festival. Guys, you can either look at this as evidence of incredible primitive thinking or look at it with wonderful fondness about the familiarity and human nature of the relationship that our rabbis had with God and his system. It's, it's Tevye-like, and that's not unattractive. Right? Uh, uh, that's not unattractive, it's English. For. That's very attractive. <laughs> so it's, it's how we do these things in England. Okay, everything's understatement. Right. Um, I said to somebody the other day. They said, "Are you enjoying yourself?" I said, "Yes, it's not half bad." And I suddenly realised oh, that's so un-Californian. It's not half bad. That means very good. Right? It's a very English thing. Um, so. Um, hmm? Well, um, yeah, I, I, I think that may happen, but I'm not sure that anybody was that worried about that. Uh, there was, however, a festival, or, or rather a ceremony, instituted by the Pharisees. Now, I, I, I guess you're familiar with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These were two great camps of Jewish thought, you know, the, the Republicans and the Democrats of the ancient Jewish world, the Roman Jewish world. Um, the Sadducees, named after Tzadok, the high priest from a long way back, the Tzadokim, were the, uh, we might say, upper-class, um, temple-based, priestly um, camp or party. And the Pharisees um, were the uh, forerunners to our modern-day rabbis. Um, they were worker teachers, mostly. They were popularists. They were... Um, 
and, and all of them had uh, kind of artisanal jobs. You know, they were charcoal burners or sandal makers or carpenters or whatever. And they taught in the marketplaces. Their place was the synagogue. Um, they were eager to interpret Torah to make it pertinent and manageable by ordinary people, while the Sadducees were much more interested in making sure the Torah was directly, literally applied in such a manner as to ensure that the priestly and temple process continued. And the Sadducees were also, of course, the descendants in some ways of the Hasmoneans, uh, the Maccabim, and were in some sort of relationship with the occupying Romans, sometimes comfortable and sometimes less comfortable. Um, and the Sadducees and the Pharisees were at uh, great odds on a number of different things, interpretations of things. Uh, but one of the things that the Pharisees instituted was a festival of water pouring, water libation, called Simchat Bet HaShueva. Uh, according to the Talmud, this uh, festival, there was a great parade of bringing water to the temple, um, and uh, the rabbis would um, juggle and fire-eat and, uh, and do handstands and so on to celebrate this wonderful occasion of water giving. Because if God guaranteed water to the land through the winter months, the harvest would be great in the following year, right? So a really important, important event. As far as the Sadducees were concerned, uh, there's no reference to this event in the Torah. It's just made up, and they really didn't want to do it at all. But nevertheless, the power of the Pharisees and the people had made this such a popular event that the Sadducees eventually kind of had to give in and perform this ceremony in the temple. Now, there are ceremonies, as you probably know, in the temple involving animal sacrifice, and pretty well all of them involve the pouring of blood onto the, from the sacrificed animal onto or around the altar. In this particular ceremony, the Simchat Betashueva, there was the pouring of water, all right? And so water was poured um, into channels around the central altar, by the high priest. That was the, the part of the central feature of the ceremony. According to the Talmud, on one particular occasion, one particular high priest, and this story is told also by Josephus in his um, uh, Jewish wars, um, most probably Alexander Yanai, the great-grandson of Yehuda HaMakabi. Right? Um, he, it appears, decided... Great-grandson or grandson? One of those. Anyway, uh, he decided that he would not submit to this Pharisaic exercise. And so he took his, um, the water that he was supposed to pour, and all the people watched, waiting for him to do it, and he poured it over his own feet instead of over the channels of the altar. The people watching were incensed, and they pelted him with their etrogim. Right? It was Sukkot, after all. They all had their etrogim with their hands, and they pelted him with their etrogim, and he had to hide behind the altar. And according to, the, um, to, to Josephus, anyway, um, he says that the dents in the, 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 the sides of the altar were faced with uh, gold sheets, and the dents in the sides of the altar could be seen uh, from this event, from this um, uh, moment when he refused to fulfill this uh, water-pouring ceremony. 
Um, so it was obviously very important to the people. We pretty well lost it completely, of course, because it was centered entirely in the temple. But on this uh, seven circuits, this Hoshana Rabbah, uh, there is clearly a great uh, climax of the salvation cycle of the seven days of Sukkot. Now, what was another feature of Sukkot? We mentioned the Sukkah, we mentioned the Lulav, we mentioned that it uh, finishes with Hoshana Rabbah, but there was another interesting feature, which the rabbis also had a, a fine time with. In the Torah, we are told that on the first day of Sukkot, you know, there is a, a cycle of sacrificial offerings for each festival, and it's very precisely laid down. On this particular day, you, give, uh, you sacrifice so many bullocks and so many rams and so many lambs and so on and so forth. On Sukkot, it says, on the first day of Sukkot, you should sacrifice 14 bullocks. On the second day, 13. <coughs> on the third day, 12. On the fourth day, 11. On the fifth day, uh, 10. On the sixth day, 9. And on the seventh day, 8. I may have got that wrong. But anyway, and however it is, the total number adds up to 70. Right? If you add all those bullocks together, you get 70 bullocks. And the rabbis concluded that the reason why the Jews were commanded to do this was because we were making offerings on behalf of all of the nations of the world. Now, again, you need to understand that the number 70 in the rabbinic mind immediately triggers the, rabbinic, the biblical tradition that there are 70 nations. You don't have to worry about yourselves about which ones they are, but 70 nations is the, is the biblical sense of the whole world's population. Well, actually, 71, because there are the 70 goyim, the 70 nations, and there are the Jews. Okay, 71. So when they saw that the Torah commands the offering of 70 bullocks, they concluded that what we were doing on Sukkot is we were making offerings on behalf of the whole world. Now, how strange is this, folks? Because didn't we say that Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are the two universalistic festivals of Judaism? And when we come back to Sukkot, we're coming back to the central myth of the Jewish people. When the Jews were taken off out of Egypt into the wilderness, just us together in these little booths, just us, and we make offerings on behalf of the whole world. You know, this is the remarkable flip-flop of the Jewish process, whereby things seem to be intimate and then become universal, and then they seem to be universal and they become particular. And here's Sukkot that looks like the archetypal occasion for the Jews to just get together. And how do we do that? We go out of our homes into the open air. But then we all have our little hospitality opportunities and we make offerings on behalf of the whole world. Very strange. And it's the constant play of Jewish life. This keeping both things in play, which is evident all the time in Jewish practice. Some of you uh, will know that according to the traditional liturgy anyway, there is only one prayer that we say unchanged every day, three times a day. Only one. It's not the Shema, which is only morning and evening. It's not the Amidah, which changes in different services, Shabbat and weekdays and so on and so forth. It's the Alenu. Alenu, morning, afternoon and evening. Alenu is the necessary dessert of every service meal. 
Right? Do you know the Amida is like the entree? You have to have an entree, otherwise it's not a meal. Right? And then the, the Shema is like the hors d'oeuvre, and the Alenu is like the dessert. You've you got to have right? And Alenu comes in as the dessert every time, morning, afternoon, and evening. But it's a comparatively new prayer. I mean, the Shema, of course, goes all the way back to the Torah. The Amida uh, was said to be uh, founded by the Anshe um, Knesset Hagadolah, the men of the great assembly, 4th century BCE, 5th century BCE perhaps. Um, uh, and, but the Alenu is a prayer which only came into the regular um, weekday liturgy in about the 12th or 13th century. Um, you'll probably know that it comes originally from the uh, liturgy of the Yamin Nuraim from Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's in the Musaf of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. It's one of the occasions when we kneel in saying Aleinu. And in fact, it's two separate paragraphs. The two paragraphs don't necessarily belong together. But someone in the 12th or 13th century goes, boys, this is so good. We've got to use this more often. And they banged it into the Siddur and it went into every single service and the two paragraphs went together and that's what we have with Aleinu. And you may know that the first paragraph is all about the particularities of the Jewish people. <coughs> right? Aleinu l'shabech, it is our duty to. It's all about what Jews are supposed to do. The particular features of Jewish behaviour. And then the second paragraph, there's a whole talk, by the way, to be given on conjunctions in prayer. Right, the ansos and the buts and the evens and the ifs and so on. Right, and the second paragraph starts Al Cain and so. Right, have you had a whole paragraph about we're supposed to and we must and we should and la la la. Right, and then it says and so, and then it goes into the great universalistic dream of a of a time when eventually the whole world will be one, and this prayer encapsulates the two sidedness of Jewish life. The particular, we Jews should be distinct in the first paragraph and the second paragraph, which says, so that we can work towards the universalistic world that we aspire to. And as you probably know, the vast majority of Jews are either first paragraphers or second paragraphers. <laughs> right? You'll know them. You can look around and you can count them. You can see the first paragraph is very good at doing the first paragraph and little attention to the second paragraph. And then others who will say, no, no, my Judaism is all about the second paragraph, universalist, and da-da-da-da. And you go, what are you doing with the first paragraph? Go, ah, no, that's old hat. I don't do it. Right? The trick, of course, is to put the two paragraphs together. That's what they did in the 12th and 13th century. And that's what we've been trying to tell ourselves ever since. Right? So on Sukkot, we take this strange festival, which is so intimate, so us, so you know, let's just go outside, folks, and get in a huddle. And then we make it somehow a universal thing. But then comes Shmini Atzeret. Shmini Atzeret, the eighth day of Atzeret. Now, the rabbis were really not sure, should we sit in the Sukkot on Shmini Atzeret or should we not? Is it the eighth day of Sukkot or is it a separate festival? Well, certainly in the liturgy, it's called Chag Hashmini Ha'atzeret Hazer, the, the, the festival of the eighth day of Atzeret. Right? It's not called the eighth day of Sukkot. It's, right? it, it, it isn't that. But it is called Zaman Simchatenu, the season of our joy, the same as Sukkot. Right? So is it or isn't it? They couldn't decide. The Halakha says that you should sit in the Sukkot on Shmini Ha'atzeret, but don't make the bracha instead in case you don't have to. Right? That's how it's uh, resolved. Right? But... They notice in the Torah that on this eighth day, you just offer one 
Bullock. You see, you've been going through the sequence of 14, 13, 12, and so on. You would expect on the eighth day to offer seven or whatever number we've got down to, but you don't, just offer one. And the rabbis say, that's what Shemini Atzeret is about. Atzeret, I haven't translated the word Atzeret because we don't really know how to translate it. Right? Uh, those of you who have been to Israel will know that on the buses, if you ring the bell, a sign comes up, Atzor, which means stop. Right? Well, it doesn't really mean stop, it means think about it, maybe you'll stop, it all depends how you feel, a lot of people will shout at you, perhaps I'll be able to get off if you open the doors, and so on, right? But technically it means stop, okay? Um, so atzeret maybe means a time of, uh, uh, of stopping, right? Atzor can also have a sense of gathering, of getting together. So, but we've already established that all of our other festivals are times, holy convocations, times for coming together. So, so why would this be a time for getting together? The rabbis came up with a beautiful, beautiful image, and I recommend it to you. And by the way, Shemini Atzeret is a festival which is almost completely overlooked, especially in that part of the Jewish world where there are two days of Shemini Atzeret followed by Simchat Torah. Because nobody knows what to do with Shemini Atzeret, because there's nothing to do. Right? Jews always complain about how difficult it is to Judaism, and then they only do the difficult bits. They go, oh, Yom Kippur is a hard work. I'll keep that. Oh, Pesach, it drives me bonkers. I'll do that. They go, well, shovel what? Nothing. They go, oh, I can't be bothered. Right? Sukkot, build a sukkot. Go, no, oh, okay, I'll do that. Right? They, Jews only do the difficult bits. So there's Shemini Atzeret. It's as sweet as a nut as a day. There's nothing to do on Shemini Atzeret. What did the rabbi say? Lovely, lovely idea. They said, well, let me give you this image. I, I, I don't know, if, you, if you've had a family simcha, okay, yeah, a wedding or a bar mitzvah or whatever, and it's all lovely, isn't it? All the guests are there and it's all great and it's fine and, and, and they're all dressed up and it's smart and you've got those shoes that pinch a bit and all that stuff, right? And you're having a wonderful time. And then eventually everybody leaves. And all that's left is the immediate family. Right? Just the immediate family at home. And you kick off the shoes and you put on your dressing gown or whatever, you make a cup of tea, you sit down and you open the presents or you read the cards or you gossip about who was there or whatever. Right? And you all just sit, that little comfortable bit at the end when everybody else is gone. And the rabbis say, that's what Shemini Atzeret is. That Sukkot, we've done this whole, uh, you know, we've had Rosh Hashanah, we've had Yom Kippur, we've had Sukkot, we've had this whole global thing. We've sacrificed on behalf of the nations, we've been out there, we've done all this stuff. And God says, don't go yet. Just stay one more day. Don't do anything. It's fine. Just relax. Let's just have a day together. Nothing special. That's Shemini Atzeret. Just such a wonderful festival day. Nothing to do except just enjoy it. And Jews go, oh, I don't think I could do that. I, I need something to do. Very odd. Right, so we have Shemini Atzeret. That's the third of the, um, of the second half things. We've got Sukkot, we've got Hashanah Rabbah, we've got Shemini Atzeret. What's the fourth? Of course, the fourth is Simchat Torah. What is Simchat Torah? Where does it come from? Well, as we've already mentioned, outside of the land of Israel... The tradition arose to have two days of festivals. This is something to do with the original business of not being able to determine which day, of a, festi which day a festival would fall. So in order to be on the safe side, you kept two days. Not entirely logical, 
because, after all, we only kept one day Yom Kippur, whatever, right? But nevertheless, we kept two days. And the reason for keeping two days Rosh Hashanah is not that. We keep two days Rosh Hashanah because even in ancient times, they kept a 48-hour day. There was so much to do on Rosh Hashanah, they couldn't get it through it all in a day. So Rosh Hashanah is a two-day festival, not because of, of the same reason as the other two-day, you know, the two days at the beginning of Pesach and that kind of thing. So in the diaspora, and specifically in the early days, we would have been talking about Babylon, but we might also include Alexandria and then Rome and other places too. In the diaspora, outside the land of Israel, they would keep two days of the major festivals. So Shavuot would be two days. Pesach would have two festival days at the beginning and two festival days at the end, while in the land of Israel there would only be one day and one day, beginning and end. And on Sukkot, similarly, two days of festival at the beginning of Sukkot, and two days of Shemini Atzeret at the end of Sukkot. Right? That's how it was. Uh, by the way, when the state of Israel was formed, um, everybody knew that Eilat was not in the biblical land of Israel. You all know that, yes? Eilat is not part of the biblical land of Israel. And therefore, strictly speaking, it's part of the diaspora. So should Jews keep two days of festival in Eilat, or one? Well, the Israeli, or not yet quite Israeli rabbinate, the Palestinian rabbinate um, at that time, uh, debated this long and hard. And they decided that it would be pretty well intolerable for the state of Israel to have some people keeping two days, some people not, and everybody worrying about the boundaries and so on. So they just made a general blanket rule that in the state of Israel, one day. Outside the state of Israel, two. Okay, that's the general rule. Um, I, I, personally, I think that they just recognised that the chances of anybody keeping even one day in Eilat is pretty slim. <laughs> so trying to make them keep two is a, a more foolish. But anyway, um, so really, strictly speaking, Eilat should be doing two because it's not in the land of Israel, even though it's in the state of Israel. Nevertheless, in Babylon, they had two days of Shemini Atzeret, okay, uh, as Orthodox Jews still do around the rest of the world. And indeed, the liturgy... Right? Remember I said we've got these little lines that we change for different festivals. So we say Chag uh, HaSukot, all right, or Chag Pesach. We say Chag HaShmini HaTzeret, right? And we say Chag HaShmini HaTzeret for Simchat Torah as well. Simchat Torah is not a separate day. It's just the second day of Shmini HaTzeret. It's Shmini HaTzeret, right? Now, in the land of Israel in ancient times, when they started reading the Torah, in synagogues, right, in a cycle. Um, the synagogues came into being originally in Babylon and then uh, <coughs> grew in the land of Israel also. When they started reading the Torah in the land of Israel, they read it on a three-yearly cycle. Right? So the, the cycle that we're familiar with, you know, one week Breshit, the next week Noach, the next week Lech was not how they did it. They read it over the course of three years. Right, um, We still know what those three yearly cycles are, and I think some progressive synagogues, some reform synagogues, use this three yearly cycle one way or the other. In Britain, um, they don't go through the sequence so that they end after three years. In Britain, what they do is in the first week, they read a part of Breshit, and in the second week, they read a part of Noach, and in the third week, they read a part of Lech Lecha, and then in the second year, they read the second part of Breshit and the second part of Noach. I don't know if that's the same here. It, it breaks down, of course, the, the coherent cycle, 
But what it does do is it preserves the business of starting at the beginning and getting to the end in one year. But in the land of Israel, they didn't do that. They spent three years reading from beginning to end. So they didn't have an occasion to mark the annual ending of the, of the Torah. They, they didn't read it every year. In Babylon, however, they instituted a yearly cycle, the one which is conventionally used, the, the, the Sidrot that we're familiar with. And therefore, they did indeed finish reading the Torah every year. So when to start and when to finish. Well, the natural time to start, uh, and remember, of course, the, the, the Torah reading is detached from the year. You can't have um, the, the reading about Pesach at Pesach time and then the reading about Shavuot at Shavuot time or something, because the, the, you know, the, the Sidrot don't work that way. So you can't, bother, you can't worry yourself about trying to get the various readings according to the different times of year. But when to start? Well, a natural time to start might indeed be Pesach, the beginning of the Jewish people, and so on, let's start there. But of course, that's not the beginning of the Torah. The Torah starts with the creation. Right? So maybe a natural time is the time that the rabbis decide was the time of creation. We talked about this last week. Perhaps then um, uh, we could start with, uh, with Rosh Hashanah. But if you start the reading on Rosh Hashanah, or on the Shabbat nearest to Rosh Hashanah, you would start with Breshit, and then you get interrupted by Yom Kippur, by Sukkot, by Shemini Atzeret, and so on. So you'd start with Breshit, and then you'd the three weeks before you could get going again. So that doesn't feel right somehow. It doesn't feel like a proper starting, because the minute you start, you stop for weeks. So what they decided to do was that they would start after Sukkot, and then they could get going properly. Because then we would have read the whole thing through, and we would have been reading it for the whole year, so we'd be prepared to wait for the last bit, right, to get to the end of Sukkot. And luckily, they had a spare day on which they could celebrate this. If people didn't know what to do on one day of Shemini Atzeret, they first sure didn't know what to do on two, right? So here they had the spare day, the second day of Shemini Atzeret. And this was an ideal opportunity to celebrate the reading of the Torah, the ending and beginning of the Torah. And so it was a festival invented in Babylon to celebrate this annual cycle. Right? And how did they celebrate it? There was nothing set down. It's not in the Torah. It's not anywhere. Nothing set down about how to do it. Well, I'll tell you what we do. We already know, don't we? Hoshana Rabbah. We go around the synagogue seven times celebrating and so on. Let's do that with the Torah. Right, we went around Jericho with the shofar, and now we go around the synagogue with the lulav. Let's go around with the Torah. That's how we celebrate. We go around seven times with the Torah, and we sing, and so on and so forth, and then we read the last bit, and we read the beginning. And it's a wedding. By the way, we often make Simchat Torah for children. I don't think it's for children at all. The abiding image of Simchat Torah is a wedding. Children haven't got a clue. It's an adult image, right? We all know, those of us who have been married, either successfully or unsuccessfully, we all know that marrying is a seriously challenging business. And marrying the Torah is a seriously challenging business too. It's not easy, it's a struggle, it's hard work, it gives great pleasure, but it also gives monumental challenges. And you've got to bend and you've got to break in order to keep it going. Right? And that is the image of Simchat Torah. And we give it to children. I don't know what it's like in your synagogues, but in our synagogues, 
We, we, you know, you get all these adults shifting children into the front, right? And we give them flags with pictures of children, the like of which haven't been seen since the 1950s, right? right? We give them flags, and these kids haven't got a clue what they're doing. Go, go on, go on, go on, right? And they kind of drag their way around, you know, traipsing their flags behind a bunch of people with Sifre Torah, right? And it's just bizarre. You go to the monochrome communities, and that's what I call the Haredim, you know, the black and white communities, <laughs> right? You go to the monochrome communities, and you know what you see there? You see a bunch of 80-year-old men dancing furiously with the Sifre Torah, and there's a crowd of 40-year-olds going, please, let me in. And they go, no, get back, you're too young. Right? And they go, well, no, come on, give me a go. Right? It's recognised that this is grown-up stuff. We've infantilised our Judaism appallingly. Right? And no better example of it than Simchat Torah. Simchat Torah is one of the pinnacle events of expressing the Jewish marriage to Torah, and we chuck it away on kids. I, I, I've, I've often aspired to a Jewish community that doesn't let children near Judaism till they're 18. We, we X-rate it, right? We go, I'm sorry, kids, no, you're too young. This is grown-up stuff. I'm going off to learn now. You just uh, do whatever you like. And they go, no, please, can I come? No, you can't. I'm sorry, how old are you? 16? No, forget it. No, you wait till you're old enough, then you can do it, right? And that's what I would love to see. But instead, we say to children, this is for kids. You can grow out of it. You know what the kids see when they go to Simchat Torah? They see a bunch of adults all standing around going, oh, that's my child. Ah, go, go, right? And, they, and you know what they're thinking as they're traipsing around with their flags behind them? They're thinking, when I get to be 14, I can pack this in. I can become an adult and treat it with complete contempt, just like my parents do. Right? And we should be showing them that this is, this is not children's stuff. But anyway, so Simchat Torah became a festival of the diaspora. And so when Israel, Israeli Jewry discovered that Simchat Torah existed, they didn't have a spare day for it. If you've ever spent Shmini Atzeret Simchat Torah slash Simchat Torah in Israel, you'll know what a kind of odd and uncomfortable thing it is. Because it starts with Shemini Atzeret. Then they have Yizkor. I mean, that's not a Sephardi thing. It's an Ashkenazi thing. To have a Yizkor on a festival. How bizarre is that? Not on a festival. We don't remember the dead on a festival. We're supposed to be celebrating. But Ashkenazim recognized it was a good way of getting people into shul. Right? <laughs> so they put Yizkor on. Right? Sephardi wouldn't do it. They put Yizkor on a festival. And so they put it on Shemini Atzeret. It's usually on the last day of the festival. You couldn't possibly put it on Simchat Torah. That would be completely stupid. So they put it on Shemini Atzeret. But what happens in Israel, you've only got the one day. So you have Yizkor, and then suddenly everybody goes, hey, party, after Yizkor, and, and shifts into Simchat Torah. Very strange, right? Simchat Torah was a day designed for the second day of Yom Tov, right? Um, and, uh, and those of us who have only one day have to somehow figure out. And Shemini Atzeret, of course, gets short shrift. It gets shoved aside because what is it? It's just family. It's just us. So shove it out the way because there's a party to be organised and things to be done for everybody. And it's a great shame. And it's lost and it's gone. But that takes us then to the end of the Tishri cycle. And at the end of the Tishri cycle, we shift into Cheshvan, the month of Cheshvan, which is often called Mar Cheshvan, bitter Cheshvan, because there's no festivals in it at all. And the contrast between Tishri with all of this excitement. I mean, nobody would have designed it that way, would they? All those festivals in one month and then nothing for a month. It's not well thought out, is it? Don't know who was responsible, but it wasn't me, right? So that's the Tishri cycle. Folks, uh, I will stop for questions and, and if...
if you don't have very many, we'll get a little started on Hanukkah. But we will have more than enough time for Hanukkah and Purim next week. Um, but any questions then on the Tishri stuff? Or comments? Yes? Uh, I remember when I was, there was a custom of Akhen or Shamas, in which you take, uh, usually these were eucalyptus, uh, eucalyptus branches. And there's a bunch of them, you hit the table. Oh, yes. And, uh, I don't know exact, and this is the one that uh, uh, compensates for your sins that you still have to pay back to the, uh, to the Almighty. This is very strange. You're absolutely right. We still do it, and certainly do it. In, in, yeah, well, we do it in my shul. Um, as many, um, Hashanah Rabbah, of course, is very odd because it's got this very extended liturgy, these seven circuits with lots of stuff to say, all very obscure Kabbalistic business, right? Um, and it's on a weekday. It's, it's on a working day. So, the, the, you know, the service starts at six in the morning or something quite stupid because everybody's got to get to work. So it doesn't have quite the mood of general celebration and enthusiasm it ought to have. But nevertheless, you're absolutely right. We do this seven circuits with the Lulav. Oh, I should just say this. This is quite special, I think. Um, the circuit with the lulav, I, I, it's, to me, it's one of the most beautiful moments of the whole year, actually, the Hoshanot on Sukkot, this, this circuit round the synagogue with lulavim. Uh, it, it's, it's a beautiful thing, and, and very ancient, very simple, very primitive, very direct. It, it moves me a lot. On Hoshanah Rabbah, we do it, as I say, seven times. And the tradition is this that you take out of the ark um, on every day of Sukkot when you have a Hoshanah, uh, the ark is opened and a Sefer Torah is taken out and held on the bimah while the circuit goes round. And at the end of the circuit, the Sefer Torah is taken back. On Hoshanah Rabbah, because there are seven circuits, if your shul is lucky enough to have seven Sifre Torah, then all seven Sifre Torah are taken out. And they're taken out and they're all brought to the bimah. Seven Sifre Torah on the bimah. And as each circuit is completed, one Sifre Torah is taken back into the ark. So the ark is emptied and then refilled. And as each person takes back their Sifre Torah, they then join the circuit with their lulav. It's a very um, beautifully choreographed sequence, um, uh, uh, but hardly witnessed by many Jews at all. Um, and you're absolutely right. At the end of the last circuit, um, we take a bunch uh, of, well, usually we use willow leaves, but you're right, eucalyptus would do the same sort of things as you have on the lulav. We take a bunch of those and we beat them out in order to beat off the leaves of the branches. As you say, the, the normal um, traditional explanation is that these leaves are like your sins. You're beating them away. Some of you will be familiar with the practice of tashlich, which happens on uh, Rosh Hashanah. This business of uh, chucking your sins away, chucking crumbs into water or something uh, so that it flows away and uh, following uh, one of the lines from the prophet Micha. Um, all of these uh, folksy customs of of physically, of visibly seeing your sins being shed. Um, when I was a, a, a boy, um, we used to bring back to my mother the branches with no, no, uh, no 
uh, leaves on them. And she would take the branches and she would hit us with them, saying, novio, 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 which in Spanish means bridegroom, bridegroom, bridegroom. So nowadays I bring them back to my daughters and I go, novio, novio, novio. I have no idea why, but that's not a reason for stopping doing a custom. Yes. Yes. Right, right, right. Yeah. I, I have heard of that being done. It's interesting, isn't it, that this is is a practice that would bother me deeply. I mean, I, I, I've not seen it, and I can understand how beautiful and powerful it would be, but it bother me deeply. Um, because there is a strong tradition that you don't open the Torah unless you intend to read from it. And you only open that bit which you're going to read. Um, but I think that's, I mean, I, I think it's a beautiful idea to see the whole Torah on this, on this occasion. It's very powerful. Um, Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I, I, so I, I do understand that. I, I'm reminded of um, of an occasion when I took a group of non-Jewish students um, to visit a, a liberal synagogue. Liberal is mm, similar to Reform here. Um, uh, took a group of uh, non-Jewish students to visit a, a liberal synagogue, and the rabbi of that synagogue very uh, kindly. Uh, offered to show the students around and explain stuff to them. And he took out of the ark a Sefer Torah. Now again, when I take students to a synagogue, I would not take the Sefer Torah out because I don't think it's an artifact, an object. I think it's a book. If you're not reading from it, don't take it out, leave it. Right? And I would take out a Megillah or something like a Book of Esther to show them what a... But that's fine. It's his synagogue. He's got every right to do what he likes with his Sefer Torah. So he took out a Sefer Torah and he undressed it and opened it to show them inside what was... And I'm feeling more comfortable now because he's actually showing them and reading some of it. So that's, that's good. Excellent. I'm very pleased he's read some of it. That's fine. And uh, then he said, okay, now if you'd like to come through, we'll show you the... Right. And he left the Sefer Torah there on the table. I don't know. I, I said, well, you go on, I'll, I'll stay behind, right? <laughs> Thinking I'll just put it away, right? And one of the students said, are we just going to leave the scroll there? That doesn't seem right. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? You see, because I, I don't want to ennoble my sensibilities uh, into, into law or rules or something, but... Um, there are these various kinds of reverberations that sit deep, some of which we can justify, some of which we can't, some of which are just, you know, potty training, we're stuck with it. Um, you know, but, but that idea of how one treats a Sefer Torah uh, is one of the really deep things. As you know, there are only three truly sacred objects in traditional Judaism. A Sefer Torah, a Mezuzah, and Tefillin. These are the three items which are handwritten with the name of God in them, right? The secondary level, we move into books which are printed with the name of God in them, right? A chumash, a sidur, or those things. And after that, everything else is just things, right? There's no sanctity in a kippah or a talit or a kiddushkap or a menorah or whatever. They're just objects, right? But these objects, 
in the traditional mode of things, the handwritten things with the name of God uh, have uh, you know, great significance. Um, and each of us will manifest the respect we want to show in our different ways. Um, I have heard that, and I would love to witness it, just to struggle with my own feelings. Um, but it's, uh, yes. Sorry at all times. Yeah, thank you. Ah, okay. Right, right, right. Oh, well, so that's, that's an interesting strategy, isn't it? Because many shuls have a Torah which is not quite kasher. There's something wrong with it. There's a missing letter or it's rubbed out or something. Uh, so that would be quite a nice uh, educational way of using a Torah you couldn't use in some other way. Yes. Yes. So your comments and the comments about the Sefer Torah. So how do we prevent ourselves from creating an idol. <laughs> yeah. Uh, did everybody hear the question? How do we prevent ourselves from creating an idol out of the object of the Sefer Torah? I, I think it's really difficult, isn't it? And, and indeed, uh, we don't even need to get to the Sefer Torah. We probably do it with all kinds of other objects as well. Um, I suppose... Uh, I, I think you know, do you, that one of my fields of interest is world religions generally, and um, I'm a bit, of a bit of a whiz in these things. And um, Sikhism, uh, Sikhism is a, um, a small uh, Indian religion from the Punjab. There are probably about as many Sikhs in the world as there are Jews, about 14, 15 million, something like that. And Sikhs had nine gurus. Um, successes from Guru Nanak the first, uh, through nine that followed, or eight that followed Guru Nanak and the ninth decreed that there would never again be a living Guru and the, ninth, the tenth Guru is called is the Guru Granth Sahib which is a book the book of, of Sikh prayers and praise and this book uh, is in the Gurdwara in the Sikh temple is placed on a cushion under a canopy with a fly whisk next to it, and it is treated with great reverence. Right? Uh, and the first time I came across this, it reminded me of the Sefer Torah. Because the Sefer Torah, we dress, don't we? Mm -hmm. And we dress it in the costume of the Kohen Gadol. Right? We put a breastplate on it. And many Sefer Torah have a crown on it, right? Uh, like, like the Kohen Gadol. Um, and it seems to me that in some ways we have made the Torah our master, right? Not dissimilar, I know I'm supposed to say deal, but I can't be bothered. Um, not dissimilar to, to the Sikhs and their Guru Granth Sahib. So there are more I think... Than us. Hmm? There are more Sikhs than there are Jews. No, it's roughly the same number. About, about 14, 15 million, right? Um, it's easier to count Sikhs because they're a bit more obvious, but right. yeah. Um, uh, so I, I think that, of course, we mustn't make an idol out of it, but that's not a reason for not reverencing a master. One of the things we've got um, bad at is how to identify and treat with honour our best teachers. I'm not, this is not uh, requiring you all now bow down, right? Um, but how we identify and treat with honour our best teachers. There are all kinds of traditions about how one ought to behave towards one's, one's own rabbi. I don't mean the guy your shul happens to employ. 
I mean, the person from whom you learn, the person who gives you direct guidance, right? Um, and, and we shouldn't be embarrassed or ashamed or worried about that kind of reverencing, right? Um, the same thing goes, by the way, for all the traditions that exist in Jewish teaching about how one should treat one's parents, right? Um, we've got so far from this now, we're so democratic, so flat, so non-hierarchical, that we get nervous the minute we start giving any kinds of status or honour and we think we're slipping into some kind of idolatry or pedestal placing or whatever. But there's a big gap, a big gap, between making something instructional and honourable and making something an idol. There's a monumental gap, especially if you're clear about the fact that you think the Torah is only a gift from God then God remains the centre of it all. The Torah is merely a means of identifying, of finding out, you know, of learning and so forth. Right? And the more familiarity you have with the Torah, then the less likely the object will replace the content. The object is only the holder of the content, and it's the content that's significant. The written text only echoes its potential content. The written text needs reading. The Torah has no power without a reader, right? without a holder, without somebody who opens it. Yeah? That's, uh, I suppose that's the countervailing statement to my concern <coughs> about opening it without reading it. Right? That it should, only be, it should only be a thing of meaning, not just a thing. Right? And, and, and I think that um, we've lost a lot of these forms. I, I'm very impressed by and struck by the way that uh, Americans somehow keep in play their very robust uh, political democratic stuff around the president and their equally formal respect for the president. You know, Mr. President, I think you're an idiot. <laughs> and I, I think that's very, that's very rich, that. That's very powerful, very tricky to do that. Right? I mean, we don't have to do that in Britain because we've divided it up. We've got the Queen, you're wonderful. We're not going to make any comments about you, thank you. Right? And then we've got David Cameron, who's a twit. Right? So we can manage that, that's easy. But you've got it both in the same person and somehow you keep it in play most of the time, I think. Right? The form of respect and, and without creating some kind of totalitarian master. Right? And, and that I think, you know, we can do that if we're subtle and if we're aware of the fact that the Torah as an object is significant because of its content, not because of its existence. Folks, I think that pretty well brings us. If there's one last question or comment on any of this Tishri stuff, yes. Yeah, well, they do, absolutely. Sikhs are a very interesting lot. I, I'm very fond of Sikhs. I think they're a great bunch. One of their great slogans is, Sikh is a people, which sounds very Jewish, really, in a way. Um, and, uh, and, and they have quite a lot in common with Jews, and then they have other things which are not. Um, but, uh, but Sikhs are, are a good lot, um, and there's probably not that many in the United States. I don't know. They're probably clustered in the certain... Lots of them, yes? Including the military. In the military. Well, the Sikhs are a fairly martial lot. Uh, 
Um, they, they have a long military history, it's a big significant thing. Um, and on the Sikh flag, of course, you've got the crossed swords, so it's a big deal. Um, Sikhs are a very interesting lot. And they're more um, um, gender egalitarian than traditional Judaism. Although they have men and women sitting on either side of the Gurdwara in services, both men and women can equally lead the service, conduct practices, and so on and so forth. Um, uh, although the most senior Sikhs are all men, uh, in regular Gurdwaras, women and men play a fully equal part. And that's because Guru Nanak, way back 500 years ago, said there are neither men nor women nor Muslims nor Hindus uh, nor um, something or something else. I can't remember. Young or old, uh, but all are Sikhs. Oh, last question? Yes? The Yes. Just an idea that came to my head when you said it. Islam is bitter. is also Oh, right. Well, no, that's modern Hebrew. That's ah, modern Hebrew. Right. We always have to be very careful, maybe, folks. Maybe because there's no holiday, ladies don't have to cook then. <laughs> oh. Well, if you've allowed the men to get away with not cooking on festivals, then I'm sorry, the women only have themselves to blame. Thank you. Next week, Kanukah and Purim. Thank you very much.